Welcome back to Out of Our Minds. In this episode, Tim and Andrew answer this question. How do we as parents handle the issues of the dangers our children face as they grow up? They lead off speaking about physical dangers and then begin to address sexual dangers, a topic they will take up in more detail in subsequent episodes. Out of Our Minds is brought to you by New Geneva Academy. If you are able to make it to Indianapolis, Indiana on October 4th and 5th, we'd love to see you at our 2023 Shepherds Conference. It's entitled Hope in God, Bearing the Burden of Ministry. Ministry is difficult work. Undoubtedly, it is a joy to preach Christ and see him work faith into the sheep of the flock. Even still, it is grueling spiritual work that can lead to loneliness and spiritual depression. We've seen the ministry strip a man down to almost nothing, especially recently. Our hope is that this year's conference will help you lift your head in faith. We know you need some reminder of the purpose of the burden and some encouragement to find your rest in Christ. Join us for a restorative time of sound biblical teaching, warm fellowship, good food, and sweet worship. For more information, visit newgenevaacademy.com. Hi, Tim. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Andrew? I am well. The weather has cooled off a bit. There's a nice rain falling this yeah, evening. Yeah, it just started a few seconds ago. You can hear it. Maybe if our, if our sound, sound engineering is good, you don't hear it, but you probably will. A little bit in the background. So the topic tonight is children and danger. And before we get into that, can I just suggest to listeners that we would love to know what topics you'd like us to deal with. Absolutely. And so uh, you can write me at tbbayly at gmail.com or what's yours? Mine is A-M-A-R-K-H-E-N-R-Y, A-Mark-Henry at gmail. But uh, we had a few, I had a few different titles for tonight's talk. The first one was Lions and Tigers and Bears, Oh My. <laughs> but that also made me think of what David said to King Saul, which was, I took both the lion and the bear and killed them and rescued the lamb out of their mouth. And that was not a safe and supervised activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, what he was talking about was his youth. Yeah. And so OSHA would, or whoever the government nanny is that handles child labor, would undoubtedly have filed charges against Jesse, you know, for sending his son out to fight lions and bears. I mean, bears. if he'd had a reflective vest on, maybe it would have been okay. <laughs> but certainly you have to think that there were some young shepherds who didn't win that fight. Undoubtedly, yeah. Or didn't even have that fight. Something came and took the sheep and the shepherd ran away. Mm-hmm. I think I would have run away. I, I think I would have had a hard time staying in the <laughs> yeah, field with sheep. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would have stayed with the sheep, but if, I don't know, a lion, I think that might have done it for me. Uh, I remember uh, Chris Taylor telling me a story one time of taking his kids to the zoo when Isaiah was very young, and they went to the lion enclosure, and a lion came right up to the grass <laughs> and looked at them for a minute, and then Isaiah looked away and looked back, and the lion roared in his face on the other side of the glass but 
Chris said Isaiah was just terrified for days because that that sound so close, so loud, and it just gets all around your upper thinking brain and the lower back part of your brain that says, I'm an animal made of meat. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I look tasty and delicious yeah, to this yeah. enormous thing. Um, but when it comes to safety, it's easy as a parent. I know I tend to prioritize physical safety and be less aware, less thoughtful, and less faithful about preparing my children for other kinds of dangers and balancing, allowing them to take risks with wrapping them up in bubble wrap and stuffing them in the closet. Well, I don't think we've explained what the subject is just because you talked about the different titles. Uh, I think that one thing that we feel as parents and as grandparents constantly is the pressure between not allowing our, especially our boys, to be sissified by their mothers who are so concerned to protect the relationships and physical well-being of their family, which is how God made them, and it's good. But on the other hand, not being devil-may-care, just, you know, pump pump your chest, and we're men. Yeah, there's no question it's possible to be negligently careless. Or even to take pride in it. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's largely what, I forget what the name of that book was that was so popular among Campus Crusade people where it talked about God taking risks with us. And there was sort of an idolatry of risk that arose out of that. Was that Every Man's Battle? No, no, no. no. This was years ago. It was a hugely popular book. I don't remember the name of it. But anyhow, a lot of people... uh, who have recognized the beauty of manhood and womanhood, of masculinity and femininity, then make the mistake of idolizing risk and danger. You know, I would call it the GoPro movement. Okay. And that is not manhood. I've read an awful lot of military history and sailing vessels and all this stuff, and one of the themes that comes through is that the real men that the other soldiers and sailors respect, the military man, is regularly they will say that he's a man that admits that he's afraid. And they have no respect. They almost despise men that say, oh, I don't get afraid. Yeah. Now, we like to tell the story of Stonewall Jackson saying that you know he was willing to go out on the battle and never worried about it because he was as safe there as he was in bed because it was in God's control. That's not what I'm talking about. Go ahead. But if you watch a shell take off the legs of the guy next to you, it has to cross your mind. Yeah, it, it, and if it doesn't, it's because you're either wasted or stupid. You know, God has made us such that we act in a way that is self-protective. And that's not a mistake. It's a good thing. Yeah. To act as if Christians are not self-protective. The Apostle Paul was self-protective despite everything he went through, all the dangers he went through. Yeah. He was self-protective, but he had a higher goal. But today, there's almost this worship of foolish risk. I was saying to some people a couple days ago, I won't watch GoPro stuff. I won't watch YouTube stuff. Because I quickly realized that 
somebody was risking their life in order to be famous. Yep. And so I, to me, it's not a hypothetical when I'm watching somebody that's successful and accomplishes the thing that there are other people that died trying to accomplish it. Yeah. And one of the things you find out as you get older in the ministry is that Proverbs is really true. The fool, God does kill him. People die because they're foolish. I read an article this week about the uh, MTA in New York City trying to cut down on subway surfing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Overwhelmingly young kind of adrift. Describe it. So subway surfing is climbing up on top of a moving subway car. Um, The most popular places are like right across the bridges, across the Hudson, on the top of a train. And there have been, there are a number of fatalities every year, people either falling off and then being run over by that train or a passing train or hitting their head on bracing or a tunnel mm-hmm. entrance. Or, and it's just, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a certain kind of reckless thrill-seeking that looks like it has roots in young men who simply have nothing better to do mm-hmm. and don't, don't feel they have anything to live mm-hmm. for except for that momentary thrill of, this is amazing right now. And who knows if I have tomorrow. A number of years ago, we had a news account here. And in Bloomington, we have several viaducts. In fact, we have one of the largest in the country. People wouldn't think that. But it's this humongous, long viaduct that was built, what, 100 years ago. My wife and I had our engagement photos taken up on that viaduct. Yeah. When you could still get up on it easily. Yeah. And there were women on a viaduct that was over by, I think, Lake Lemon, somewhere on the east side of, uh, of town. And th- they were walking. You're not supposed to walk on these things because as the trains come, they don't know you're on it. And there is no place to go. Yep. You're either on the tracks or falling. Falling. And so the engineer saw them coming. And he blew his horn and blew his horn and blew his horn, and they were running as fast as they could in the middle of the tracks, trying to get to where land came. And they weren't going to make it. And so both of them lay down in the middle of the tracks with their heads at the very center. And the train went over them, and they lived. All right. And, you know, on the one hand, you're so thankful that these two women were protected. But on the other hand, immediately they got arrested. And I, you know, I worked on the railroad. I'm happy they got arrested because you think about an engineer and you put yourself in the position that he can't, he knows he's going to kill you. He can do nothing about it. And so really selfishness, whether it's motivated by risk-taking or whether it's motivated by depression, is maybe the supremely selfish act. When it comes to the people who love you and the people who end up, you know, you've heard of death by police. Yep. You know, how does it, how does a law enforcement officer feel about that? So this is the subject we want to talk about tonight. How do we as parents, grandparents, pastors, elders, how do we handle the issue of the dangers that our little ones face as they grow up? And when we talk about trains and GoPros and skyscrapers and subway surfing and things, we're not limiting the discussion to the physical dangers we face, but thinking about the spiritual dangers, the relational dangers, um, dangers from other kids, dangers from grownups, dangers of all kinds. 
And it is, it's sobering to think in some ways the world has gotten less dangerous and in other ways it's gotten significantly more dangerous. Certain dangers have become more omnipresent, more insidious. So I don't know anybody who has died of tetanus. Like none of my childhood friends died of tetanus. None of my childhood friends died of polio. That was a normal thing a hundred years ago. You would lose kids in your elementary school to tetanus and polio and diphtheria and other things. And it's not that our memories are short because most of us weren't alive at that time, Mm -hmm. but our cultural memory of what mortality was like and how often people would just be there one day and gone the next day. One of my my high school history teacher told me that his uncle, when he was a teenager, dropped a pair of shears on his foot. I think in the family shop. A couple days later, he was dead. Got an infection, got sepsis, and was gone. And we're so used to that not being the norm that we can both kind of just write off danger entirely and not think about it or become hyper-focused on, does my kid have all his elbow and knee pads on before he puts on his rollerblades? We can like magnify the micro things that still seem present. And both of those seem like they're missing something important. Both of those have ditches that you can fall into. Today I visited three people who have recently had bad accidents. Yep. Sunday I preached up at Clearnote in Indy. Afterwards we went over to the Abbasaras. And my son Joseph had told me that he was going to preach at a service of a bunch of Reformed churches a couple of weeks ago. And as he was walking in, having prepared his sermon for this joint worship service, he saw a pastor and his wife entering. And he was floored that they had come. He was certain they wouldn't. Well, why? Well, because the previous week or so, they had taken their, I think it was a daughter, to college and to move her into her dorm room. And while they were moving her in, their son, who was, I, I want to say 14, had taken a skateboard and was skating around the campus, hit his head, and died. He fell, he hit his head, he was dead. Well, the same couple had lost another son to an accident a couple years ago, who was a teenager. And so... After the service Sunday, we went over to David and Vanessa's pastor, David Abbasar of the Clearnote Church in India, and his wife. And they have a large family and three girls, and the rest are all boys. And when we sat and talked in the living room, I looked at the boys and I realized these boys, these young men, are precisely at the point where you want to prove your manhood, you want to prove your willingness to take risks, and yet you don't have a proper sense of what, what, a, what a tenuous and precious thing life is and how easily it's gone. And so <laughs> we were there for a visit, and you know me. What I did was I spent half an hour impressing upon those young men the danger 
of the activities they engaged in and that they needed to realize that life is very vulnerable and they needed to not take foolish risks, right? Yep. Well, then we get home and we find out that the next day, one of the young men of your church, Trinity, had an accident and suffered a serious concussion and was, had to be... Was life, you know, med-flighted up to Indy? Yep. And so I visited him today. You know, uh, he didn't have a helmet on, and he was learning to ride a dirt bike, and he hit a tree. Now, he was... Apparently, they had a helmet there. I, you know, the point of this is you can take a snapshot at any time and assign blame. That's not my point. Yeah. My point is he didn't have a helmet on, okay? And then... Another man who was 77 or 78 who is timbering in his late 70s and was using equipment, and he ended up smashing his pelvis to smithereens and is now, what, 45 days into it? And then the third one was a woman who I visited, uh, who you don't know, but and I don't know her. I know her father, and I visited her, and she had an accident. She doesn't remember why she was in the car. Nobody was in the car with her. She wasn't driving. So in other words, apparently the people that were in the car with her abandoned her. And she has no ability to move her legs, only one of her arms. And so three people today, Yep. accidents. And what you see as a pastor again and again and again and again is that life is precious and can be gone in an instant. I think about Owen. I think of my, about my brother, Joe, yeah. who died from an accident sledding Christmas night. And we have to be good stewards of life because the Bible says what? The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's talking there about joining yourself to a prostitute. But the principle holds the body is a precious thing. Yes. And when you think about how much attention we give to our bodies in terms of diet, I mean, every pastor wishes that he could just say a word and be done with people dividing their small group and communion and everything over gluten and sugar and all this stuff. I mean, Soylent green for everyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, the body is a precious gift from God to us. And so you said earlier, you said, well, it's not just bodily dangers. That's true. It's also sexual dangers and it's also spiritual dangers. It was interesting in preparing for this. I looked up what it says in Scripture about uh, be careful. It seems like a good phrase to search. Yeah. Well, the Bible is always using be careful about is to obey God. It's not telling us be careful when you're walking downstairs that your wife hasn't put anything on the stairs. <laughs> Although not a bad practice. Yeah, I know. But my wife and I have fought over that for years, and I think I'm on the edge of finally giving up. My grandfather was a safety engineer with Republic Steel in Massillon, Ohio. And he taught me, don't ever put anything on the stairs. And so I have spent years trying to make sure 
Nobody Mary put things Weiss. on the table. No, it's not other people. It's Mary Lee <laughs> because she is she is absolutely in bondage to the concept of efficiency. If she knows she has to take that downstairs, she doesn't want to take it down now. That's not efficient. Wait until she has another reason to go downstairs. But she will put it on She'll the bring stairs it downstairs to when she has to run down to check on you after you go headlong. Oh, yeah, um, Mike Rowe has said um, safety third. The uh, you know safety first is is kind of a joke in manufacturing industries because there's such a willingness to work around safety protocols that were designed by pencil pushing engineers who've never run a machine, and you often end up. This is like I know it's a it's a sore spot for you, but. It's now at least a decade in the past, but the new gas cans. I still have a vintage gas can with a straight, poor spout, and I hope to bequeath that to my children and to my children's children. And if I have to machine a new spout out of solid metal for that myself, I want my CNCs to keep that little thing going, I'm going to. Because you open it up, and then you pour it. <laughs> but we often are dealing with things that make a big show of being safe. And what they actually do is just be dumb. Let me talk a little bit about this. First of all, I have three gas cans of five gallons apiece. We have a ZTR. We cut about 10 acres every week between my son-in-law and myself. We share the lawnmower. The new gas cans spill gas. And they spill gas because they require a method of opening up the spout that is almost impossible. Everybody hates them, but the federal government is a nanny and they've required everybody to use that. But if you go on Amazon, you can find uh, breathing whole apparatus. And so I bought a can and completely reconfigured it so that as a breathing hole, yep. I drilled a hole in it. I bought a bre- you know, one of those little yellow things yep. that you can put on and off. This is typical of, I want to say liberal, but it sounds crazy to say that it's liberal to require you to use a gas can that spills gas. But that's what we've gotten to. I'm actually not sure if we can publish this because the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, Explosives, and Gas Cans <laughs> might, might raid, yeah, raid yeah. your garage. But let me tell a few things about my dad. My father... When he was speaking at Cedar Campus, so we grew up going to the university camps, Bear Trap Ranch, Cedar Campus, etc. And one day, when he was speaking at Cedar Campus for a summer camp, he got us in the car, and we drove over to Canada. And when we were in Canada, he loaded the car up with fireworks. Oh, yeah. We got back to the border, and he hadn't anticipated this. The border guard said, any fireworks? And there was this long silence, and then my father, with the whole family listening, had to say yes. And they confiscated, and we were dirt poor. And he had bought all those fireworks, hoping to set them off at Cedar Campus to entertain everybody for the 4th of July. When I was in school, my father loved it. If I would find an M80, a cherry bomb, or a homemade bomb of any sort, if I would He'd get home from work, and I'd say, hey, Dad, I got one. We would walk about half a mile down to a bridge over a creek of a gravel road, and we would light it and drop it in, in the water. 
and just absolutely go into seventh heaven over the 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 geyser that would go up in the air you know yeah. we just absolutely loved it that was my experience growing up then i remember buying a lady finger which was larger than a black cat and i remember setting it off one time and when i lit it 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 was a dud and so it didn't go out. So I walked over, picked it up. As soon as I picked it up, it blew up in my hand. It didn't blow off any digits, but it did leave me without feeling in my hand for a day or two. Then I got some homemade bomb and gave it to my cousin, who was the administrative lawyer for the Chief Justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And 10 years after I gave it to him, and I had gotten it from my brother David, all right, he lived in a neighborhood, and everybody was blowing off things on the 4th of July, and so he took this thing out on his front porch and held it in one hand and lit it with the other. Well, it had a flash fuse. And he called me, and he said, Tim, guess what just happened? I don't know, John. What happened? You know, he went to Wheaton. He was a lawyer. He was very, very good, very precise, very law-keeping, very law-abiding. He said, I just lost my thumb, half of my index finger, and the top of my middle finger. And I laughed, and I laughed because he and I had had a habit of finding fireworks and blowing them up. That's so American, it hurts. I have always said to couples about the issue of danger in children that there's something to be said for allowing children to have firecrackers and Roman candles and, you know, bottle rockets. Yep. And they always look at me like I'm insane and I must not be a Christian, you know. And I say, no, here's the quote. The quote is, the final result of protecting fools from their folly is that you fill the world with fools. And then I say to them, you realize that if kids are protected from making mistakes that really hurt when they're young, when they'll heal quickly. The first mistake that they'll really make is to get all their friends in their car after they're drunk and kill them all. And so I think one of the things when it comes to danger in children is that whether it's arguing with them about creation whether it's talking to them about sexuality, whether it's firecrackers, whether it's sledding in the winter, we need to protect the ability of children to learn wisdom by getting hurt. Now, I know that sounds insane. So you want? I'd like to hear what you have to say about it. I've got a lot of thoughts on it. Earlier you referenced my son Owen, and I wanted to give a little background there. My oldest son... Uh, a number of years ago, had a pretty pretty serious bike accident. He was also not wearing a helmet. He was riding on the road. Uh, a car came up over the hill pretty fast. He panicked and tried to ditch off the road and crashed his bike and went headfirst into the, into the pavement. We didn't know he'd had a crash. He made it back home, and he was confused and didn't know where he was and didn't know how long he'd been gone or why he'd come home. We had sent him over to the neighbor's house to play. And there was a marked shift in his in his personality and his behavior 
almost immediately that persisted severely for a year or more and was probably the single most difficult thing we'd had to deal with as parents by far up to that point. It was very serious. It was, it was very serious to the point where I wasn't sure what we were going to do next if we had to continue to escalate mm-hmm. in dealing with it. Um, God's very merciful. That has abated. And Owen is happy to ride his bike around without a helmet on. I, I, that one is particularly, that one's particularly touchy for me because I'm like, hey man, we've we've gone, we've gone we've, down this road. We've been on this merry-go-round once. We're gonna come around again, and it's gonna be the same thing. But I grew up uh, in a house that was very close to the road on a New York State highway, and it had basically no shoulder. It would have been like, it would have been like 45, 46. It was a two-lane highway. People were driving 65 on it. Uh, we had several fatal accidents within sight of my house. And the most memorable to me was two young men from our town who crashed their Corvette into a huge tree in our front yard and died on St. Patrick's Day Eve. And they had gone to the next town over to a pub and had gotten completely plastered and came down the hill that we lived on and did, I don't know, 100, 110, crossed the center line into our front yard in their I forget if it was red or orange. I think it was orange Corvette and their car burst into flames. They were burned to death. I mean, they died in the impact, but their car was in flaming pieces in our front yard. And I found pieces of that Corvette in the woods next to our house for years. It exploded. And I was, I was young. I was probably seven. That made such an incredible impression on me. You know, we're standing out in front of my house it didn't even look like a car. I, I, I wasn't even sure what I was looking at. There was just this huge fire in our front yard. Mm-hmm. And the firemen, when they got there, chased us all back inside and was like, you, don't, you can't watch. Don't be out here. Mm-hmm. And that has, for my entire life, created a deep, visceral fear and hatred toward driving under the influence. And... In my mom's generation, that was very, very normal. I remember she said that her uncle Buddy told her that he he drove home blackout drunk weekly. But he was a union man, you know. Mm-hmm. You could just get away. You, you could just do that, mm-hmm. apparently. And the the level of the level of casual risk that people can get habituated to taking is really scary. Because if you do it once and you almost die and you realize it. You go, oh, maybe not again. But if you've done the same thing hundreds of times and you've managed to never get caught, never cause an accident, never harm yourself, this is why, this is why table saws are so dangerous. This was the, this was the tool um, that my dad was very intense with me about because he had a wood shop that I grew up working in. Um, not a production wood shop, just a, a garage shop to make and do all kinds of various cabinetry and things. And he had a board screwed to the wall right next to the table saw, and it had this big circular gash in it. And that was a board that he had been cross-cutting. It was rough sawn lumber, and it had bound on the blade because it wasn't, it was still a little bit green. And the board pitched up and hit him in the face and the throat. And he was wearing a face shield. And if he hadn't, he was convinced that that, that would have killed him. 
And so he took that, drilled a hole in it, and put it on the wall right over the saw. And every time I was at that saw, I look up and go, right, where's the face shield? And I have to have enough of a tolerance for risk to function. I have to have enough of a tolerance for risk to lead my family, to teach my kids, to show them things, and to live in a world that isn't safe. God does not guarantee us any kind of safety. I was reading Job 3 and 4 this week. It's part of our Bible reading plan for the year. And you know the servants saying, hey, I was out with the other servants. We were tending the camels, and then these guys attacked, and they put everybody to the sword, and I'm the only one who got away. And these are just guys who are just doing their job. They're just watching the camels, and they're, and they're gone. And that, that can be paralyzing because at any second, the hammer could just fall on you. But it can also be really invigorating because we're still here. And we have done many, many dumb things that coulda, shoulda killed us. And God has preserved our lives. I've done some dumb, dumb things. And I still have all my fingers and toes. And that's not because I was smart or cautious. It's because God protected me. But I grew up without fireworks. I was in New York State, and they, you couldn't buy them anywhere, and we didn't make trips to Canada that often. So. Well, we couldn't buy them either. I mean, <laughs> all these things were illegal. And my dad knew they were illegal. Now, here in Indiana, totally fair game. Well, it's completely changed. And now the, everybody's about to change it again. They're going to make it all illegal again. Um, Did I answer your question, though? Well, no, you didn't answer it, but you certainly helped. Because what we're showing is that danger is, is a cosmic part of life. It exists on every single level. And we can try to avoid seeing the consequences, but you really have to be pretty hardworking to not see the consequences of foolishness and death. I mean, really, death. I remember I was working on a sermon up in Wisconsin. I'd just gotten a Mac. And I remember I was working Saturday afternoon, and I had written most of my sermon. And all of a sudden, for a split second, the electricity went off, and I lost the entire sermon because the father of one of the young girls in our youth group had just hit a telephone pole. And as a pastor, I can't tell you how often you see the consequences of drunkenness, of rebellion, of fools, of people who refuse to be instructed. And you don't point it out at the funeral, but everybody there knows it because everybody watched this fool for years refuse to listen to warnings. And parents, Christian parents, need to think very carefully, very carefully about what their expectations are going to be. 
for the safety of their children, spiritually, emotionally, sexually, in every way. And I think it's one of the most difficult things you deal with is husbands and wives arguing over the discipline of your children. I remember a real famous guy came and twice gave a seminar at our church, probably had the best-known book on child-rearing that there was. Neither of his uh, seminars that he gave for us did he ever mention conflict between mothers and fathers over the discipline of their children. And I just thought, are you serious? That's like, it's beyond a trope. It's like iconic. It's like cosmic that men and women have a different level of tolerance for danger. Yeah. And (laughs) go ahead, go ahead. I used to climb up on the top of the swing set in our backyard. I'd build a pile of leaves on the ground in the autumn, and I would shimmy up to the top, and I would stand on the crossbar and leap off it into a pile of leaves. And sometimes I would miss. (laughs) And my mom tolerated that. I I did a lot of things that I think probably drove my mom pretty batty. But there's this, there when you say it's a trope, um, this idea of, 80s parents or like 80s kids, 70s parents. I vividly remember going over to my friend Isaiah's house and his mom would give us breakfast, say, get some skateboards. I don't want to see you for five hours. (laughs) And we were in, we were in Rochester. It's not a small city and not a particularly safe city. (laughs) And she would just turn us out by Highland Park. And she would say, you know, I don't want to see you till dinner time. (laughs) And then she would lock the door and we'd go off on our merry way. And we like went across the highway. We'd go miles and miles away to different parts of the city we hadn't been to before. We'd run our skateboards all kinds of places. And, and this was, you know, there were no cell phones. We weren't carrying pocket change to call a pay from a pay phone. If something had happened, who knows how that would have gone. Let me give an older grandpa's view of some of these issues, having raised children. The first thing... I would want to say to you is, or the first thing I do want to say to you. The first thing I'm going to say to you. The first thing I'm going to say to you. Let me say to you. If I I were to say to you, verily, verily, I say unto you. You and your wife need to find a place to stand in between her overprotectiveness and your flippancy. Now, I know everybody is not flippant who's a man, and everybody is not overprotective that is a woman. I know, please don't, don't, don't lecture me on this. I know that generalizations are generally true and not always. Okay. But arguments about this are good. And for instance, my brother died having an accident sledding Christmas night. And so when we're up in Michigan, our whole clan... We go over to the, you know, the, uh, the Michigan Warren State Park, which has huge, like three, four hundred feet dunes. And we take our little kids up to the top and put them in things. And one year, Tate, one of my grandsons, he just messed up his whole face. And of course, everybody's like sobered and everything. And I'm thinking, didn't I learn this lesson with my brother? Why would I ever take my grandchildren sledding? Now, that's a good question. Why would I? Am I an idiot? Am I heartless? Am I cruel? Do I not love my grandchildren? No, I believe that there, especially for young 
boys, there is a necessity of measuring yourself against risk and danger. Real risk. Yeah, not fake risk. I don't think it's within the scope of this conversation, although we should do it at some point. But dealing with video games and living in a virtual world where the competitiveness and the danger. I think that there should be affirmative action for limited danger. I remember Mr. Taylor, Ken Taylor, my father-in-law. We'd all come together as a family. There'd be like 50 to 100 of us. All the grandchildren, all the kids, 10 children, you know, their spouses and all the grandchildren. And we would set a bonfire in the back of the yard. And dad would come out. Nobody knows dad, but I mean, dad was anything but a, you know, chest thumping, you know, macho dude, big beard, that kind of stuff. He was an editor, writer, author, publisher. And he would come out with an aerosol can. And as we were all standing around this bonfire, he'd throw the aerosol can into the... And of course, the whole point of that is to wait until it explodes. Yeah. Now, people are going to have a fit hearing that and think, how thoughtless. That is a crime against the The Sixth Commandment. Well, forget the ozone. (laughs) The Sixth Commandment. We're supposed to protect life and keep life and... Well, yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm telling you, you and your husband need to decide where you can find a livable space to live with your children in between your overprotectiveness and his cavalier insensitivity sort of devil may care. All right, that's the first thing. And that has to do with physical safety. It has to do with wearing helmets Do you require helmets when you ride a bike or just when you're skateboarding or inline skating? When do you require helmets? Will you allow your children, when they come of age, to buy a motorcycle? And listen, I am totally opposed to motorcycles. What I tell young men when they buy a motorcycle in my church, although I have now resigned my church, is I have always said to them, listen, I want you to know, you bought a motorcycle if you die. I will not bury you. And it it shocks them that I will come to them and say that. So I'm not consistent. I don't care. All I'm of not us. consistent. I don't care. Yeah, I really don't. I really don't. Consistency was never the name of the game. Well, consistency with deciding where you're... Uh, standards are for danger and raising your children, it should never be a function of anybody other than you and your husband. And it also probably shouldn't be the same set of rules for every single child. There was one girl that I knew growing up, and I don't know if I ever saw her without a cast on one of her on one of her limbs. <laughs> I had a friend like that in high school. And she like fell, she bounced herself off the trampoline and fell on her head and bit the front half of her tongue off, and she just broke an arm every summer. It was just like she could not. My oldest son, Joseph, one time got hurt. I don't remember what the hurt was. And I remembered this friend from high school. And I went to Joseph and I said, Joseph, listen to me. You may not hurt yourself. Now, I know people think that's insane. Well, my children wouldn't listen to me if I said that. And they're the same people who don't ever think to tell their children they may not spill their milk. But the funny thing is, if you tell your children they may not spill their milk, guess what? You will spend your entire life with no milk on the floor and and, and the tablecloth and the table. It's not actually difficult to expect children to not spill. 
Well, I said to Joseph, listen, your body is given you by God. And you can be one of these guys that gets attention and acts as if he wasn't looking to break a leg or an arm or a wrist or anything. But I've noticed psychologically there are certain people that gain attention and that get a a kick out of that. And I said to Joseph, you are to protect your body. I don't mind you taking risks, but make sure your risks don't involve you breaking an arm, a leg, and other things. And so, yeah, when you say certain people need to be told that. And so we had, I don't know, we probably had, I don't think we ever had a broken bone of our five children. I didn't break any bones in my body till a couple of years ago. Yeah, what were you doing? I was doing jujitsu. I've broken See, a few bones now, doing jujitsu. Now, 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 this is another thing. Can we talk for a second about the issue of spiritual danger versus physical danger? Please. One of the things that bothers me about discussions of danger is, I was saying earlier, if you look up, be careful in Scripture, it's almost always referring to obeying God. The real one we should fear is God. But what I noticed today is that everybody's afraid of getting fat, of not giving enough uh, exercise to their heart, to their lungs, of eating gluten, of of probiotics, of of jujitsu, of biking. It's like we're insane about developing our bodies. But I don't see anybody putting that amount of work into developing their knowledge of Scripture and their holiness. Spiritual dangers are not con- of concern to us today. They're just not. We take God for granted when it comes to our souls. But we are obsessive when it comes to our diets. And that is absolutely contrary. In, in, the, in the Bible, in 1 Timothy 4, 7, the Apostle Paul says, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And then this parenthetical statement. For bodily, godly, for bodily yeah, discipline profits a little. Bodily discipline is only of little profit. Yep. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Any of you who have read Tiger Woods' story know that he wasn't content to be the best golfer in the world. He also wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And this is all through the church today where all of us want to prove ourselves through our beards, you know, through our jiu-jitsu, through whatever it is that you do to feel like you validated your manhood. If you don't realize that there is a difference between a policeman and a pastor, and the difference is the policeman only guards your body, but the pastor guards your eternity. If you're willing to submit to a policeman but not to a pastor because he irritates you, he who does he think he is warning me? We need to have a different concept of danger. We need to realize the real dangers that the Bible warns us about are the dangers of not fearing God and not taking seriously sin and error and false doctrine. If you find yourself as a mother, say, for instance, being more careful and having more arguments with your husband about the bodies of your children than their souls... Our culture glorifies physical health and strength and beauty, exercise and 
clean with clean living, the whole idea of eating clean, living clean. And that that is a luxury that we have as an extremely wealthy, leisurely society on the whole. Mm-hmm. Generally, it is middle and upper class people. I mean, the, the entire idea of paying for a gym membership, paying money to go to a place where you get to lift up heavy things and then put them down is completely normal and yet is in a large part historically pretty absurd just because you would do manual labor if you were a laborer mm. and that manual labor was hard. That's the reason why there are things like, like a, what I think they call it like a brick thrower's or a clay thrower's fracture. There are certain kinds of like back breaks that are named after the trades of the men who would always break their back in that way. Mm. It's not that exercise is wrong. I really enjoy I really enjoy going to jujitsu a couple times a week. Mm. I normally get my head handed to me by pretty much everybody on the mat. I'm not that good at jujitsu. <laughs> and for me, the discipline of making myself go and do it, even though I know it's going to be 90 minutes of just fighting to stay alive, it's where I meet people that I don't go to church with. Can I talk to you as a friend? Sure. You know what I think about you and jujitsu? I think that it is imperative for you to observe regularly a place where your brain and your discipline and your perfectionism and your obsessiveness. But when I listen to you talk about it, uh, what I notice is that you take joy in the fact that you are not able to stiff arm the thing and win. Totally. It's so weird. And so I don't actually think jujitsu is for you a physical thing. I know you're, you're going to argue. No, I, 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 would, I would wholeheartedly agree. And I've, thing. I've said that to my wife that it's one of the only chunks of time in my entire week when I only have one thing to do and I don't have to think about almost about anything else. For 90 minutes, I'm not thinking about my business. I'm not thinking about music I'm trying to learn. I'm not, try, I'm not thinking about anything else. I get the luxury of being completely focused on a single thing that engages my entire mind and my body. And when I'm done, and, I'm tired. And that you can't just win it. For real. And that's such a good thing spiritually. The last tournament I went to, Owen was embarrassed. He watched me get smoked four matches in a row. <laughs> and by the fourth one, I, I looked over at him and he like he was looking away. And it, it wasn't oh, the poor boy. It wasn't because it wasn't because I was making an absolute clown of myself. No, no. It was just he was he was shocked to see the intensity with which his father was fighting and still losing. Yeah. So you can have an argument with your husband and wife over physical danger and you can disagree and you have to come to an agreement and if you let your husband win and then your son is in critical care unit because he learned to ride a dirt bike without a helmet you do not punish him because god is sovereign we will not live as if god is not in control of what happens to our children. They were his before they were ours. But now I want to talk about sexual and spiritual danger. When it comes to sexual danger, 
the way that child abusers work is by backing you into a corner where you don't feel comfortable, but you don't want to think about why you don't feel comfortable. That thought comes to your mind. Act. All the alarm bells should go off. But I remember one time, you know, we met with men every week. It was called David's Mighty Men. And one week I talked about incest. And I said, listen, it is your job to recognize that a preponderance of those who abuse children are related to the children they abuse. It's a grandfather. It is an uncle. It is a father. It is a brother. Or it's a youth pastor. And then six months later, a couple came to me and told me that their children and the children of their siblings had all been abused by their father-in-law, or by their father, and that they had wondered about it, and it didn't seem right, but they thought, surely not. And that's precisely the space where the most wicked men in the world live, where they know that you will think, surely not, and therefore won't ask questions, won't protect. When it comes to sexually protecting your children sexually, if you or your wife or your friends have any sense that something's off, it's your children that you need to be concerned about. Not the awkwardness of your relationship with the person. Not how family unions will run. It is basically a statistical certainty that in any extended family of more than a handful of people, there is sexual abuse that has happened in the past. But you better. And is happening in the present and will happen. People listening aren't going to believe you. That's and one of the most difficult things. Well, is this that is. Christians just don't believe that that's going on. When we look at basic questions of how frequently certain kinds of things happen in the world of all different types, it is is an error to say, if this happens at this percentage in the population at large, if you shrink that down to 100 people, that that ratio will be maintained exactly. It doesn't. It's variable across populations. It's variable in location. There's all kinds of reasons that it'll be variable. If you're in a church of 100 people or more, it is a dead-to-rights statistical certainty that there's sexual abuse related to children. Children, it's certain that adults in your church were themselves victims of sexual abuse. Absolutely. It's a, that's, that's a slam dunk. It is likely in a church of any reasonable size that there are at least some children who are actively being abused. Absolutely. That's a horrible thought because then you look around and go, well, is it you? Is it you? Is it me? Who is it? That can turn into paranoia mm-hmm. and that can turn into every family wanting to be their own little silo. I mean, and that is not the solution because then all you're doing is reducing the world of your children to your sins and your husband's sins and your parents and your uncles and aunts. And that's not the solution. Can I bring you into my office as we sit and talk to homeschoolers, to classical Christian schoolers? to people with impeccable reform credentials. I mean, I know people are going to think 
that surely this isn't true of their church, but would you look at the Old Testament? Would you look at Corinth? You know, it's just common. Look at Tamar. So I took a brief pause to top up my water, and Tim and I talked for a few minutes before we hit record again, because this is a very heavy topic. And it's a topic that has a lot of a lot of layers, a lot of things people don't want to talk about, a lot of things people don't want to think about. It it can get into enormous numbers of skeletons in the closet in any church, in any family. The minute you move from physical danger to sexual danger and spiritual danger. Yes, absolutely. And what I said to Tim during our break is that I really want to encourage everybody who's listening that it is not impossible. We are not presented with a bleak and hopeless future in which we cannot protect our children and cannot raise them in a way that is healthy and whole. God provides for that. Yeah, absolutely. But what I fear is people listening will think what you're saying is not impossible is to find a church where these aren't dangers, to find a family where it isn't dangers. That is impossible. Absolutely it is. There is no congregation that is a safe place, no matter how many signs to that effect they may post. No Christian school. No no youth orchestra, no swim team. No organization you can be involved in is immune to this and risk. And if you think that by keeping your children home as long as you can until they get married, that you're going to make them safe, what you don't realize is you, you yourself, your husband, your sons, your daughters, are the threat to your own home. And the reason is all of us are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I was... In John 2, it says Jesus didn't entrust himself to anyone because he knew what men were. That means all of us. He's not talking about the male of the species. He's also talking about the female of the species. And so I think probably the best thing and most hopeful thing for us to say as we move into sexual and spiritual dangers is that if you don't study and learn the deceitfulness and the wickedness of your heart and the heart of your husband, your wife, and of your children, that is the most dangerous thing you can do, is try to cover it all with cotton candy and isn't God's grace wonderful? In other words, we have to have, are you ready for this, a robust view of original sin. That is the best protection for our children as we raise them. That and absolute trust in the merits of teaching our children to fear God. I completely agree. There are a few specific practical things that Christian parents should think about, should work through, and should be aware of. And I'll mention just a couple of them briefly. The first one is, from the time your children are young, it's very important that you teach them in plain language the names for the parts of their body and teach them to have some agency and some verbal boundaries and physical boundaries around who can talk to them about certain parts of their body and touch them on certain parts of their body. And a child who grows up uh, speaking in euphemisms and nicknames and never really talking plainly 
mm-hmm. about a penis or a vagina mm-hmm. is a child who is at a deficit already when it comes to somebody wanting to harm them and being able to do that without the child being able to articulate what was wrong and exactly what happened. So it's not shameful to teach our kids the appropriate names for the parts of their body. God made our bodies. They're good. They're a gift from him. And we should not be ashamed to talk to our kids about them. And we also shouldn't let that shame creep in. My older two kids are just getting into puberty. It can be easy. It's easy for me. It's awkward for me. My oldest is a daughter. It's awkward to talk about the physical changes that happen in puberty. It's critically important, though, that I actively keep those lines of communication open and that those topics do not gradually become off-limits through neglect. And then understand what is involved, what you need to do if you suspect something is happening. And when Tim said all your alarm bells need to go off and need to go bonkers, that's true, but it means specific things. It is... If you, have a, if you have a suspicion that your child or another child that you know of is being abused, you must report it. You may not look the other way. You have an obligation to take action on that child's behalf. And that will be messy. And if you are wrong, it will be messy. And if you are right, it will be messy. There is no way for it to not be messy. So... When we're trying to raise kids in a healthy home, in a healthy church, I want other sets of eyes on my family, on my kids. I don't want to be the only one because I I can't be a watchman 24-7. I'm literally not awake all that time. I cannot be the only person who's responsible for seeing what's going on with my kids and observing what's happening. And I want other Christian moms and dads and pastors and elders and older men and women that I trust to be looking at what's going on with my kids. And one of the nasty realities that Christians don't like to think about so much is that churches are an above average risk zone because the people in them tend to be nice and tend to be, tend to be less confrontational or credulous are, are willing to believe naive are willing to believe a, seemingly sincere explanation that kind of defies gravity for why this or that thing happened. And so if you're in a church, your your church should have should have certain things in place. If they have any nursery or children's ministry, they should have background checks for their volunteers. They should not have unsupervised teenagers taking younger children to bathrooms, and they should have a policy that spells out exactly how the church is required to respond in case an allegation is made so that if something comes up, it does not get handled from the hip, made up with no procedure and no plan in place. The chances of of people under pressure in a contentious and probably unclear situation, of them parsing that situation well, and acting decisively on it is really, really low. Reporting things to the police, you have to do it. It's, it's the absolute bare minimum in many states, in most states. It's required by law. 
you aren't allowed to just tell somebody on staff at the church about your concern. If you think it's legitimate, you have to escalate it. Tim, this is kind of nuts and bolts and a bit dry. The spiritual dangers part thing, I've been dealing a lot recently with the music that I listen to because my daughter's been wanting to listen to a lot of music that I object to. And I can't object to it for her and not object to it for me. That's how I'm thinking about spiritual dangers in my home currently are the things where my kids are encountering things now where the thing that I need to work on or push on is an area where I have cut myself a lot of slack. I think that people listening are going to focus on the issue of sexual abuse and obsess over it. And, of course, the consequences of sexual abuse of children are catastrophic. Just as we've seen the number of women that are in jail for violent crimes increase, it used to be it was unheard of. It was only men that did that, but now women do it. Um, We're seeing a growing number of women who have become sexual predators. And I would say, number one, study the doctrine of original sin, read the Bible, and see how much sin there is in the Bible. Read the Bible and see how much sin is committed by the patriarchs. No, serious. No, I know. And then realize that God saves sinners, the grossest sinners, sinners like me and you. And righteous lot. Yeah. And then, on the one hand, you won't trust anybody. On the other hand, all of a sudden, you will trust God. And you will realize that God is sovereign over what we suffer and what our children suffer. Now, you may say, well, then that brings us to the issue of the problem of evil. And I say, I thought you were a Christian. Don't you understand that the fall explains the problem of evil? We don't have to accuse God of being the author of evil. We're Christians. What we have to do is realize that because we're Christians doesn't mean our children aren't going to grow up in a home where our son is going to try to molest our daughter. What it does mean is that we have faith to suspect the possibility that one son is more likely to do that than the other. And to look at the way our daughter dresses and to say, you know something, would you be more modest? And she says, what is modesty? And we say, well, I'm glad you asked me that question. Or as Andrew has said, let's talk to our children about their bodies and what parts are to be private. I think that we're so wishing that sin didn't exist that we try to deny it exists. And when we deny it exists, what ends up happening is that we communicate to our children that these things aren't to be spoken of. They're not to be talked of. They're not to be reported. They're not to be. And that's the last thing you want to do. And then tell your kids, no matter what you tell me, I will love you. It really is true that sin grows in darkness and that the light of truth and disclosure is the disinfectant that can start to help those wounds heal. And the 
if you if you see your kids being peeled off by somebody who's trying to isolate them, whether that's another child or an adult, someone who is angling and maneuvering them in a way to reduce their friendships and separate them from their peers and distance them from their family. Um, and if anybody gives your kids gifts, gifts are actually a really common tool because they create an expectation and a, a psychological and emotional burden for reciprocity. I gave you something that you enjoy, that you want. Now you have to give me something that I want. And what I want is this thing. And so be just be on the lookout for that. There are certain patterns, like there are certain tricks and tools that get used over and over and over again. And the reason they get used is because they work. They work. You know what I want to do? I want to break this off now. Okay. I want us to have dealt mainly with the issue of physical danger this time. What I'd really like to have is Mary Lee join us and talk about some of the threats to our children growing up, sexually and spiritually. Because it seems to me that people can hear us talking and can make up possibilities and stuff, but I think it would be good for us to describe the particular situations we were in and how God protected our children. And I... I know it's awkward because it's our real children are situation. people. <laughs> well, it's real situations. But I think if people were to hear descriptions of what those situations were and how God protected our children, I think it would be an encouragement to people because I think they would realize that you can be stupid like Mary Lee and I were. You can be lazy like me. Lazy. You can be you can have predators focused on your children, and God will protect them. I think it would be good to not leave this subject of danger without giving specific examples of how God has been kind in specific situations. That sounds good to me. Let's record that next. Okay, let's do it. Okay.